Welcome to the Evolution Exchange podcast, bringing together the best technical leaders to discuss their passions and interests, as well as challenges and ideas. I'm Luke Vickers and I'm your host for today. I connect businesses with top software and data talent. I'm joined today by a fantastic panel to talk about their journeys from software engineers into leadership roles. Before we get into the thick of it, let's make our way around the room and allow for some introductions. So, Connor, if you'd like to start off with a brief introduction about yourself. Hey, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm Connor. Um, I'm the engineering lead for Platform at Garden Agrotech. Um, so, Garden produces uh, phenotyping and chlorophyll fluorescence sensing technology for food growers and food producers uh, to try and cut food wastage and uh, improve yields. So, yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Connor. And Tom, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Tom. Uh, I work as a lead engineer in the data capability for Maytech. Uh, Maytech is a consultancy that works with public sector companies um, and well organizations such as Home Office and DLUC and DVLA. Brilliant. Thanks, Tom. And finally, David, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm David North. I run the engineering team at Core Filey, which is an SME based in Oxford that uh, writes software for business and financial reporting. So we tend to work sort of on the back end with people like HMRC, the Bank of England, and various large banks and insurance companies, Companies House, sort of those kinds of regulators. Brilliant. Thanks, David. And perfectly on cue, Hugo's about to join as well. So I'll admit him in now. Hey, Hugo. Hello. How are you? You okay? I'm good. Good, good. Thank you very much for joining us from sunny Portugal, especially whilst you're on holiday. Yeah, uh, apologies. Uh, Wi-Fi is a bit uh, weird in this. <laughs> well, no, it's absolutely fine. Um, I'll reintroduce you. It doesn't matter that we're already recording because our marketing team will do all the stuff in the background. Um, but this is David from Core Violin, Connor from Garden Agritech, and Tom from Made Tech. Um, they've all introduced themselves at the moment, who they are, who they work for, and what it is that they do. Um, so in a second, I'll just ask you to introduce yourself, and then we'll kind of move into the flow of the podcast. It's very simple to follow through. It'll be these guys talking. I'll come round to you to to get your views on on their questions, and then come back to you to ask your question and get their views as well uh really minimal talking from myself it'll be just kind of introducing you guys to each other after each question when when people are finished speaking um so hugo if you'd like to introduce yourself uh hi i'm, I'm hugo uh, i come from portugal um and i work in uh, as a tech lead uh in a company called this is language and uh, we provide content for schools and to help teachers um to save time for teachers and also help students learn um better with the the, the kind of content that we have um so that's me fantastic thanks hugo um so thanks everyone for introducing yourself there um and following that we'll move in today's topic so you all have a question or statement on your journey from engineering into leadership so what we'll do is work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it and each of you will then have the opportunity to give your take on it so if we start with connor who had the question um where you wanted to speak with the panel about being uh, what do you give up when moving into an engineering manager role so if you'd like to give a little context around your question and, and your take on that as well yeah sure um so as a as a very recent if you like transition transitioner from 
uh, software engineer, uh, moving into a leadership role and into an engineering management role, one of the things that really I, I noticed very quickly is uh, some of the things that you tend to give up as a as an engineering manager that you perhaps have become accustomed to and, and quite enjoy um, as a software engineer. There are some aspects that perhaps you don't enjoy as much, but um, I, I'm interested to think about this because it's something that perhaps people and I certainly don't always think about. You you think about what you're moving to, um, what you know, what new responsibilities and roles you're going to have, but you don't always necessarily think about what it is you're going to give up or 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 lose or change. And I think it's important to say before we sort of kick in uh, or kick off with this, that I'm not necessarily saying that any of these um, examples are, are bad um, or wrong or, or or not good. I just think that they are things that I have noticed that you, uh, that I have sort of had to learn to give up a little bit, um, not always to completely, but things that I've had to um, transition away from uh, as I've moved in, uh, in that career path journey. Um, and I'm just curious to understand sort of what the other panel uh, members think of this as well. Um, so I think if if I try and give a little bit of context, so if you Google around, um, you know, moving from software engineer to engineering manager, a lot of uh, the content you'll find online basically talks about this idea that you're moving from what will have been essentially an individual contributor um, mindset where you are a software engineer, you are producing codes and systems and designs and anything else that you might be producing uh, to better the company mission. Uh, and you are essentially responsible for yourself, your code, um, and you are essentially sort of benchmarked against that. You are you are measured against that in terms of your contributions to the company. So you are it, representing yourself and moving at uh, contributing uh, what you can to that company. Um, but as you move uh, into a into a leadership role, that dynamic is changing and you're very much moving from this individual contributor more to a kind of team delivery mindset. So all of a sudden, uh, somebody like myself, uh, you know, who's been a software engineer for um, seven years, um, and as I say, writing code every day, uh, at the you know, nose to the coal face, working on code and systems and delivering that and, you know, having appraisals with my managers and, and talking through what I can do better um, for myself. I'm now in the position where I am, the, the focus has shipped away from myself. Uh, my focus has shipped away from myself and it has to shift to, to my team. So it's my team that's now responsible. Uh, sorry, it's, it's my team that I'm now responsible for, uh, not just myself. Um, so, uh, you know, essentially the primary measure by which I am measured in terms of my contributions to the company is no longer what I deliver in terms of Joe, but what my team is delivering. Um, so as part of that, you have to sort of give certain things up, um, to be able to, to do that properly. Um, and so sort of just giving a couple of examples that I think have struck me quite quite hard and i say i'm really interested to understand uh examples from the other panel the first big example is of th uh, something that i've had to sort of give up is is definitely focus time or deep work time so i don't know whether anyone else can relate to this but 
uh, you know, as a software engineer, I it's, it's been a real privilege and, and a real nice thing to be able to to be able to just jump into a problem that the, the company is having or that you are having or your team is having and and sort of really dive deep into figuring out that that the solution to that problem. So you know, where you're not getting distracted all the time, you are able to sort of shut yourself away to a certain extent and just crack on with the job. Um, that is something that, as an engineering manager, it becomes very, it becomes much harder to do, right? And it's something that you are not really necessarily responsible for doing anymore. You are responsible for making sure, to a certain extent, that the members of your team are able to do that. Um, but you're not necessarily the person doing that. And as somebody that really values that that focus time and being able to dive dive deep on on certain subjects, that was something that that sort of struck me. Um, that's not to say that as an engineering manager, you don't get focus time, uh, and that you shouldn't carve out time for yourself. It's really important that you do that. I think, um, you know, because you are wanting to develop and for somebody like myself, that's in a kind of slightly weird position where I'm sort of sitting on the fence at the moment between a technical lead. So I'm still very much involved in technical work day to day, but I'm also transitioning into an engineering manager. I think there's more, you know, there's still quite a bit of coding that I'm doing. So I do need some focus time, but essentially as, as I continue to progress towards an engineering manager full time, I would expect my, my understanding is that that will, that balance of code of coding, if you like, and technical work to more leadership work will, will switch in favor of the leadership work. So I think quite important to to understand and to possibly think about the fact that as an engineering manager if you are like me still working on technical solutions that perhaps you can't always work on projects that are on the critical path because you could end up potentially blocking other members of your team that are working on that critical path because um you know you are having to do lots of other things as well now um i think the second example that i would give quickly is um kind of related to the first uh and this idea of moving away from technical work and that's that's making all the technical decisions so um again as a software engineer you are hopefully trusted to go away and you're given a design brief you're given a set of uh requirements and you are basically expected and and, and requested to go away find the best technical solution that meets those requirements, but also probably meets other non-functional requirements like cost optimization or performance or whatever it may be. And but fundamentally you are you are given the freedom to go away and figure out for yourself what the right solution is. And then, you know, uh, once you've justified that, be able to go and, and implement it. Um, and so you are predominantly making lots of technical decisions every day. You are, you know, some of those are just, okay, do I write this bit of code and use this function or do I use this other function? Um, so that's why low level, you've got other examples where you're thinking about wider architecture. And so some of those are much larger decisions that could have wider implications, but fundamentally you are still making day-to-day lots of technical decisions. So an engineering manager, if you are dedicating, and this is the impression I've got, if you're dedicating the right sort of time and effort to being, to filling that at leadership role, then you probably can't, unless you're superhuman, you probably can't also do, uh, continue to make all those technical decisions. Um, you need to delegate and that's part of your job. But as somebody who is very used to making those decisions and enjoys that aspect, that is something that I found quite tricky um initially it, it basically I, it 
took me a while to let go of of needing to to make those technical decisions and actually trust trust the team that I built to to do that. But that was you know you learn and that was absolutely the right decision and and it's now I'm in a really nice place where I am not making those decisions day to day. I'm trusting my team to do it, but I I still have a very clear sense of what they're doing um, because as an engineering manager, I am wanting to make sure that I may I'm helping my team deliver the best that they can and sometimes that does require providing technical input as well so i have a really nice balance now of trusting my team to make the day-to-day technical decisions and giving them the freedom that they want and crave but also i'm still involved to the extent that i know what's going on i'm able to give inputs and give suggestions um, but my team are completely free to basically reject those suggestions if they've got better ideas and that, that i think is a nice balance of things um the third uh, and final example I would give for now um, is just having, just wearing one hat, basically. Um, and again, this kind of relates to the other two, but uh, I think this partly depends on the company that you work for, like whether it's a much larger, much more established company, or like me, if you work in a sort of startup, uh, because in a startup, everyone kind of does a bit of everything anyway. The idea of you having one hat in a startup is fairly rare, I think. Um, but just thinking, reflecting on my experience at some larger companies where I did very much have a sort of single set of responsibilities. Um, again, when you're working as part of a software team, you, you tend to wear one hat. You are a software engineer, you are developing technical solutions to requirements. Uh, you are doing some testing, perhaps, um, you are doing a bit of QA, maybe if you don't have a dedicated QA or, or testing team, but essentially you have one job and it's to go away and, and write code and develop solutions. Um, as an engineering manager, you very much don't have one hat. You tend to have several hats. And the two most obvious, I guess, would be, uh, again, in my position where you're sort of, I'm straddling between the technical lead and the engineering manager at the moment, I have two hats, which is I have my sort of semi-technical hat still, but then I also have my engineering lead hat where it's more about uh workload planning um requirements prioritization all that kind of good stuff um but then you also as as you start to become a manager and become a leader and this is something again that that took me a while to kind of get my head around it's having you've also got to have that um person focused hat so rather than being focused purely on the project you're working on and the code and the deliverables, you've also got to have that that interpersonal hat on, where you're, you know, you are, you are there to support your team. You are there to help other people and and help your team to to develop. And obviously, with that comes a whole other set of responsibilities. Things like training. How do you make sure that your team are engaged and they have the right training? How do they? How do you make sure that they feel like they get a good balance between having enough responsibility to keep them engaged and feel like they have ownership of something, but not giving them, not dumping so much on them that they become overwhelmed. Um, and different personalities, of course, will affect people's thresholds for those types of things. Um, it's also, you know, you everyone. Uh, throughout their lives have have some tricky situations and it's making sure that you're on hand to provide any assistance that you can from a workplace perspective when those things happen. Um, so having that hat on as well is really it, it, it is interesting and is a new challenge for me. Um, and then of course the final sort of hat is what I call the everything hat 
which is kind of everything miscellaneous that kind of fits in around that. So um, my style of management that I've kind of taken on is this, is to try and make sure that as much as possible, I am shielding my team from day-to-day, from, from lots of day-to-day traffic, I guess, from from internally and externally, um, because I want to give my team the best opportunity to really have some time to focus on what they're doing. So that comes back to the focus time element that I mentioned earlier. But I think you do need to definitely balance that with not shielding your team so much that they become like their own sort of ecosystem. They live in their own bubble and they never actually understand what's going on in the outside world. But in sort of try, trying to strike that balance, there is a certain element of... of being a protective barrier around your team from from lots of different influences and interruptions to make sure that your team can do their best work. And so part of that is you kind of then have to handle any situation that comes forward uh, to your team and make a call as to whether this is something that you can handle on your own and, and bounce it back, whether this is something that you do need to hand down to your team and it's something that needs to be done as a priority. And then you have to talk to your team about Re- rejigging their workaround or whether this is something that you probably need to hand your team but doesn't need to be done right away and you're constantly making those types of assessments as to what the best course of action is for any to to to, to avoid unnecessary disruptions on the team so yeah sort of wearing uh having just one hat uh as a software engineer uh is not something you get to have as an engineering manager but then it opens up a lot of other interesting um aspects so i've probably said enough at this point so if, if anyone else would like to come in or have any comments on that yeah that's brilliant thank you connor um so we start working our way around the room to get other people's views and thoughts on what they've given up moving into manage uh, into management sorry so tom if we come to you first uh, yes um so one thing that really struck me um true especially from my perspective is this sort of single hat thing so in consultancy, often we don't have a single hat. We wear many hats because we're going to a project and we're trying to provide that technical expertise in many different ways. Uh, however, coming from sort of, let's say, a software engineer to then raising the ranks, becoming senior to becoming lead, especially sort of senior to lead, I have to wear much more of a commercial hat, which obviously takes me away from the tech. So I have to sort of care about project costs, um, whether the engineering is happy, whether the client is happy, and you know, also the future health of the project from a commercial perspective, as well as technical perspective. So I think definitely as you move from, let's say, a senior to a lead position, you're definitely losing that sort of singular focus on a area within the project, so sort of a, maybe a application area or the back end or the front end component, you're actually responsible for all of the different components. So you kind of wear more hats. So that opens up more opportunities. However, it takes away that focus time and you do as a lead engineer, well, I certainly find this, you have to sort of really claw that focus time back and really kind of fight for that focus time. But, um, but it, as I said, it does open up more opportunities. That's great. Thanks, Tom. Um, and David, have you got any thoughts around it? Yeah, so I mean, I think you, you've covered a lot of the, the same things I went through in terms of what, what you give up. And I think uh, one one thing you could sort of do to, um, uh, to sort of turn it into a learning opportunity, I found, is that um, you think about what you enjoyed when you were in the trenches and you try and make sure you're giving your team that. So... On the focus time point, you know, if you're the one who's organizing things like meetings and, you know, these things have to be in there somewhere. But 
I try very hard to bunch these things together for my team so they can have entire days or at least entire half days when they're not being interrupted by me or whoever needing input. Um, and I think that's that's sort of something you can do. And, you know, that in some ways that's the easy part and wrestling with your own diary is the hard part because you've got more inputs to deal with. But it's it's one of those one of those ways you can try and try and be an umbrella rather than a funnel, I think was a way an old boss of mine put it to me, that that idea of trying to soak up all the little interrupts yourself as far as possible and uh, sanitize that and not just pass it all on down to the layer underneath you. And I think the what one of the things that I've sort of found it hardest to give up, but which you sort of have to get to that place of trust with your team, is that when you're hands on, you sort of know all the way down to which line of code potentially is you know, if you've got some customer bug report, when you're on the front line, you'll you'll know where you'll go and find out exa- exactly which line of code is responsible for this, and you'll work your way through dealing with it. As as a sort of, you know, I expect we're all details people, and it's quite scary to get to a stage where you've you've got to delegate and you've got to achieve results through others to the point where you don't know exactly where to look. You you know who to ask, but you've you've got to accept that you won't know everything down to the last little corner of the code base. You need to know who to ask and trust that they've got it covered. Great. Thanks, David. And Hugo, is there anything you'd like to add from your experiences? Uh, well, my experience is very limited. I mean, I only joined as a technical lead in November, so um, very recent. But I did encounter a lot of these uh, issues that you all speak of. Um, maybe unlike uh, Tom, which is more, so it looks like it's more consultancy uh, focused and more commercial. Um, but even then, like in, in our company, it's still, you, you care a lot a lot about the product itself and how it will evolve, especially in my in my company, which we're planning like a major revolution in, in, in what the company serves. We need to have this um, higher focus, I guess, you move a, a, a higher level um, in terms of like understanding the, the the code and everything, but uh, more of a you start looking at how the infrastructure will work and how all these high level things will be more in a like like David that you don't really get to uh, like David mentioned you don't really get to know the the specific line of code you need to you need to start understanding which people uh, which person you, you you need to ask and that's more of um, that's that's the kind of thing that you, you kind of move move to and you move away a lot from the code. And that's, I think that the, regarding the, the focus time and the things that I tend to do in my team and to avoid that disruption, uh, especially because my team is remote, they're in different time zones and everything. So it's very hard to, to manage that, that, um, uh, you know, avoiding avoiding uh, avoiding interruptions in the middle of your focus time is very hard. So I tend to um, not have any meetings on certain days uh, to make sure that people are um, you know able to focus. Because even a stand up, uh, my my team, my team's team members that are uh, five hours uh, difference in time zone, five six hours uh, stand up will be right in the middle of the day, middle of the day, or sometimes. If they start early at the end, and it really depends on when people like to focus. You know, are there people that focus a lot in the morning, people focus a lot in the evening, uh, or in the afternoons? And they, it's avoiding that and allowing them to to have that focus time. It also helps me because I can have no meetings in certain days, and if I need to look into something, 
again, like Connor's mentioned, we don't, I can't be on anything that's critical path, um, uh, or we can't be on anything. If you, if you are still doing code, you're still active on the code itself, um, then we can't really be on that, but it still allows us to have like certain, a period of time where you're focused on, on dealing with problems. Um, yeah, that's my, I say experience a lot of that as well. Great. Thanks, Hugo. And if we come back to you, Connor. Yeah. Um, those are all super, they're all super great points. Um, in particular, I think Hugo, I, one thing I hadn't really considered just, I don't have to worry about this at the moment with my company, uh, that I work for, but the whole time zones thing is really, it is a really interesting one. Um, because as you say, like depending on obviously where people are located, you could, you know, somebody's, somebody's morning could be somebody else's late afternoon. And, and so. And then if you're trying to combine that with, uh, you know, you get, you understand everyone will sort of have a, have a preference, I guess, to whether they work better in the morning, in the afternoon or the evening, but then trying to coordinate those meetings that you do need to have. And I'm not saying that people don't need meetings. People absolutely do need meetings, but they just have to be super useful and super well planned and have an agenda, um, as a bare minimum, but. It, yeah, it must be quite tricky actually to to manage um, uh, aligning, you know, your team's preferences in terms of when do they work better uh, to try and just keep meetings out of those times, whilst also handling the fact that inevitably you've got people working in different time zones, and therefore, you know, it, it is going to be a, a bit more tricky. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting point, and uh, to 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 David's point about um, uh, going back to the delegation. You are asking, you know, to your point of when you're a software engineer, you might actually know all the boards on customer support or whatever. You might, on the front line, you might actually know the exact line of code that's the problem. I'd be, you know, you're that, you're that in tune with what's going on that you know that straight away. And to move, to transition from that to basically being in a position where you can't do that anymore. And in fact, it's not even that you don't know necessarily the line of code anymore. It's actually, you might not even know the particular software component or even the whole application um, can be a little bit daunting the first couple of times you realize that. And I think one of the things I've learned most in my time so far as sort of moving into engineering management is I end up saying I don't know far more to questions than I used to. Uh, you know, if there's a technical question, I'm like, I don't know that one, I'm afraid, but let me go. I know who I should ask. I know who will have the answer in my team. Whereas before I would typically be the person that would ideally have that answer or at least have a good sense of how to answer it whereas now it's very much a case of i can answer some questions but quite a lot of questions i'm going do you know what great question not sure let me go back to my team and again it's that kind of shift in dynamic that that's quite interesting so yeah really good points though thanks connor tom did you want to add something yes i think um just the thing about meetings because one of the key things i found actually because when you could lead you organize a lot more meetings and stuff and sometimes you have to organize weekly updates and stuff one of the things i found most successful when i've organized meetings is obviously agenda like connor said however also setting time limits that aren't like half an hour to an hour so setting them either 15 minutes or 45 minutes because it disrupts it and it actually gets people at 50 minute meetings i always find this sometimes really productive especially with engineers because people can just bash out exactly what they want to do and you get within that time that people can just quickly move on often meetings don't have to be longer than 15 minutes and if they do sometimes you can do it to 30 minutes 
45 minutes, but especially working with clients and stuff, your time is limited. I get lots of meeting invites, so I do try and like scrape that in, which I've just found really useful. Brilliant. Thanks, everyone. And if we come on to Tom's question now, which was how to find your management style when you were starting out. So if you want to go into a little bit of context around this, Tom, um, and then we can work our way around the room to get everyone's views and experiences. Yeah, so I think when I first started, um, there's lots of um, content out there about management styles, how to manage teams. And sometimes they can be not very helpful because they can be very vague. And also sometimes they focus very much on a traditional way of managing people. So at Maytech, it's slightly different. I I manage a team, but I also line manage people as well within the organization. And often people that I line manage are not actually on my team. So I kind of have to do that. So that's not a very typical way of management. So it, so sometimes um, it becomes difficult to find, a, find that style. Luckily, within organizations and be from our people team called George Dalton, uh, sort of ran a bit of a workshop around managing, kind of finding your management style. They let me some good links and stuff, uh, such as um, the IMED, which is the International Management Development website. And it talks about sort of six common leadership styles. Uh, and reading through that, I found I was a bit more of a transformational leadership, a bit more delegative. I kind of have a bigger picture of things, like to delegate, and I'm not so much of an authoritative leadership. It doesn't really suit with me. And I think looking at some of these articles, especially sort of quizzes like Forbes has got a good one about sort of tips for finding your management style, such as like looking at the positive negatives of other managers you've had, you know, what do you value, et cetera, has really led me on a journey to sort of find what I kind of want my team to do. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? And I think one of the key things as well is identify what stresses you out the most, because really I think a manager has to be somebody who's very good at sort of stress handling and stress management and also managing that team. Because I think we've all been in teams where maybe there is a manager who is maybe more prone to stress than another, and it makes a real detriment to the team. So I think it's really important in your management style to find sort of your more weaker points and go, okay, how can I make situations better so that I don't have to get to those stress points? Or how can I rely on my strengths to avoid my weaknesses, etc.? But I think that it's all part of a journey, but I think that's just sort of... A journey that I'm still going on, like I've been reading into sort of situational leadership, which kind of works quite well in consultancy way, because you're kind of really looking at your team and looking at the development of your team. You know, have you got a team full of very senior technical people that you can just delegate work to and they can just, you know, go off and do it? Or are you with a team that's sort of a bit more up and coming, maybe a few more junior people, maybe people that have just come out of university and you maybe have to spend a bit more time coaching them? That's great. Thanks, Tom. Um, So we start working our way around the room again to get people's views and thoughts on how they found their management style. Uh, If we come to you first, David. Sure. So I I absolutely agree with the point about learning from, you know, people you've been managed by, both the good and the bad, and trying to trying to build on that uh your mentioning of management books and things i i agree that i often find these sort of self-help and management books that they're either quite vague or, or a lot of a lot of them for me 
seem really sort of very prescriptive like the author's convinced that they've got this magic formula for everything and they say just just do all this and life will be perfect you think well nothing's ever perfect and i i you know if there was if there was really a silver bullet for something as complicated as managing people i'm sure someone would have got very rich selling it but um but one book that i did really enjoy and i still benefit from today was um it's called Radical Candor, and it was written by a, a lady who I think had been around various firms in Silicon Valley, uh, Facebook, and some of the some of the big names in the early days. And the the idea of that is sort of in any management relationship that you should have as much honesty in both directions as possible, and you know, be 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 honest with people. Don't try and don't try and sort of. Um, waffle your way around things or, or flinch from saying both both the positives and the negatives and try and get them to do the same in the other direction and it i think it depends very much on who you're dealing with i there's one person who i managed for years who was absolutely brilliant at, at uh you know she wasn't shy about saying to me david i think you handled x wrong or i'd like to see this done differently and it was really useful to have but you know obviously it's quite rare that someone who's uh, particularly if you're line managing them and you're ultimately having having a say on their pay and promotions, you know, you not everyone's willing to be that open with the uh, with the chain of command above them. And I, one of the things I found on my team here as well is I've got quite a mixture of people uh, from from different places around the world, and you can tell sort of different cultures have different things you've got to be aware of. Like there, there are some people who. Have very much been who I manage have been very much been brought up in a society that has a sort of the idea that you respect your elders and your betters and if someone's older than you and more experienced than you they must be right and I I have to gently try and educate him out of that a bit and say I you'd like to think so but I don't want you holding me up as some kind of uh, god and, and refusing to tell me when something appears to be wrong because you know I expect you to know more than me about this and I you know, you, you shouldn't be shy about trying to hire people who are brighter than you and more productive than you and whatever else. That's brilliant. Thank you, David. And Hugo, have you got any thoughts around it? Um, yes, well, I very much agree with the, what both of you said about learning about the managers. I think that's what I've um, learned the most, really. Um, I've written books and, and it feels prescriptive. And it's also, I think it, it, it is always focused on kind of bigger teams sometimes a lot of them is focused on uh people the fact that the people are in the office um and which to me it's not it's not the case i i my team is all remote um so it, it's very much trying to understand how how that works and also the culture is different as well you know well people um two developers are from from russia running away from from russia um and, and going to different countries and, you know, having to deal with that. So it's always very difficult to manage uh, people that are, um, you know, different cultures, even a lot, like they said, and uh, it, it is, I always, what I, what I tend to do, you know, in reading articles for me, it didn't really help that much. I tend to, I, you know, I'll go on Twitter and I find, you know, I follow some people that are, well, there are leaders and I point to them directly and spoke with them and see how 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 they are working how they are um how they are managing their their developers and i found some really good advice on that uh on from those people people that work in netflix i'm sure very kind to answer my questions um and, and that's where i learned the most and i think you know if you obviously if any of you have any resources I, i'd be more than helpful 
more than welcome to receive them and, and read them and learn from them. But again, I, I've recently just learned interior leadership, so I'm always trying to learn how, how, how to manage. And I think the, what I felt was that it's not just about managing the, you know, the workload and everything. There's more than that. There's more managing people and not, not everyone is the same. Not everyone works the same. Um, not everyone's threshold on the capacity that you give to them is, 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 is the same. So you gotta, it's a constant, it's evolving, I, I, I would say, uh, how you handle it depends. It really depends on the, on the type of people that you're managing. Um, and my tendency to, you know, let them, let them do whatever, but also be, um, whatever they want, how they want it. And, you know, you know, delegate as much as possible to them because I trust my developers. They're, they're all pretty much seniors. And so they, they should know, you know, if they keep, they speak as a team, they should be able to come up with their own decisions, but it's also, uh, having to manage the different personalities and different cultures is a bit different, especially because they're remote and the communication is not always, um, you know, the, uh, to the, to a certain level where if, if they were in the office, I think, I believe it will be, it'll be very different. Um, and then when it comes to my question, I, I'll, I'll ask you or on that. Yeah, those are my thoughts. Brilliant. Thanks, Hugo. And Connor, is there anything like you, you'd like to add from your experience? Uh, yeah, just, just a little bit. So I, I don't, all really interesting comments. I mean, it's a great question, um, to, to, to part to the panel. Um, so first of all, David's point about the whole sort of age thing is, is actually a really interesting sort of dynamic on it. So at Garden, um, I am so I have I have a team of of three so you know I, there's a team of four including myself I have a team of three and I am the youngest in my team by probably at least five years um, and so that whole idea of like age being a, a massive thing um, or, or potentially being a massive thing is quite an interesting one because yeah you know that was something that I'll be honest when I was first starting out obviously Luke who who helped uh, an evolution that helped sort of build the team. Um, that was a really interesting dynamic for me to sort of get my head around as becoming a manager of like, okay, the people that I'm looking to hire here are, are like older than me. Uh, is this, you know, is this a bit weird or could this be a problem or whatever? But, you know, the, the short answer is absolutely not. Um, you know, you, and again, I think it was David that said as well, you know, you're, I'm hiring people that know more than me because I need them to know more than me. Um, there are, because I need them to go and do a particular job, right? And I'm bringing in particular expertise because the company needs those expertise. And I can't be, I can't be all things to all people. That's why we have more people that we need to bring in. Um, but then there are certain aspects of technical, um, technical knowledge where I do know a bit more, uh, because that's my specialism. And then, you know, it's the other way around. So rather than me asking the experts, if you like, for their uh, their thoughts, people are asking me for my thoughts. And the whole age thing doesn't really come into it. And we've got a really successful team um, of of quite varying age ages, um, but with the youngest sort of in the leadership role there. Um, one other thing I've done, which I think just not necessarily, I don't think it would have made too much of a difference, but I just my team are really good. But I just think it's an interesting aspect. Um, and something that I thought would be useful to do anyway is I've been really honest with my team when I've said, you know, I am a new manager. Uh, I am definitely going to get things wrong. And I want you to tell me, please, 
when I get things wrong because ultimately, uh, you know, if I don't, you know, if I don't know that I'm doing something wrong, I can't fix it. And I absolutely know I'm going to get things wrong. So if you come to me and say, do you know what, Connor, uh, you know, this was a bit chaotic or I didn't feel like I had the right support here. Um, you know, those are things that, you know, I obviously would want to fix those, but I wouldn't be all that surprised if that does happen because I know myself and I know that I'm going to make mistakes and, you know, that, that I'm going to get things wrong. So, and that has actually been really useful a bit because A, I've kind of got unofficial, almost if you like, unofficial management advice from my team for free, um, which has been quite good. Um, but also, um, I, I hope, I like to think, you know, the, the feedback I've had would suggest this, that uh, the, the, the team appreciate that because they feel like they are, you know, they feel like they are having, um, they're helping to shape me in order to, or, or helping me to grow in order for me to help the rest of the team grow. Um, and so they sort of feel a sense of buy-in, I guess, to like my development to a certain extent, um, in the same way that I have bought into their development as members of my team. And there's an interesting balance to strike there, of course, because as a leader, the dynamic is slightly different. You know, you ultimately, you are there to serve your team and the company and help them. The, 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 your team are there to, to, to help the company. Um, so you don't want to end up in a kind of conflict, a conflicting situation, but it's, you know, sure, you just think about it a little bit, but it, it's worked really well for me. And then I think the, the final thing I would say, um, is uh, I've been really lucky and at Garden, um, the, the company has basically invested in kind of all of the engineering managers in the company and they've they've arranged for coaching for all of us. Um, and that is that has been super useful. So, you know, the, the point of the coaching sessions isn't to, you know, this is how you become a great manager because to the points that several people have raised already on the panel, that type of restrictive stuff is, uh, in my opinion, a complete waste of time. What what the coaching is doing is actually helping you as a manager to take a step back from the noise and be like, okay, what are you what are you actually trying to get out of being a manager? You know, because sure, I want to help the company. Sure, I want to you know better my career, and I want to I want to deliver on a product that I think is going to make a real difference to the world. All of that good stuff that motivates people generally. But also, there must be a reason why you want to move into management in particular. You know, why do you want to do that? Why don't you just want to stay as a as a software dev? And having the coaching has really helped me to understand that, and that then helps to drive me forward to then want to engage in that process. Because again, sometimes when you're kind of in the in the nitty gritty uh, and down in the weeds with a problem or whatever it may be, and you're solving, sometimes it can be a bit difficult to kind of take a step back. And so the coaching kind of does two things. It A, forces you to stop and, and take that, take a look at the bigger picture, but also it just helps you to, helps me to figure out, okay, what am I at? What is my path forward? What am I moving towards? What things do I need to do better? And how am I going to get there? So I just sort of definitely recommend sort of coaching as a way of helping you to sort of get a wider context to your manage, to, to help build up your management sort of style, I would say. Brilliant. Thanks again, everyone. Um, if we move on to David's question now, which was how to divide your time between managing and being hands-on. 
So if you want to go into a little context around your personal views and experiences, David, and then we'll move on to everyone else's take again. Sure. So, I mean, we've already talked a little bit about how this one depends on context. And in my own case, my team has grown and shrunk over the time that I've been doing it. And I think it, it you, there's going to be a bit of a different answer to this one if, if there's four of you compared to, at the moment, I'm, I'm, I've got about 15 people and another layer of managers between me and most of them. But I think there's, whatever end of that scale you're at, there's always going to be a question of, there's at least two, there's at least two parts, at least two hats you've got to find time for. There's the managing hat, and then there's the, what your particular knowledge and skills, you know, how do you apply them? And we've, we've already, we've already said that, you know, it's not a good idea to be on the critical path for anything, but away from the critical path, I find there's, there's plenty that I can be doing that adds value and, and helps, like looking ahead at, you know, questions of architecture, questions of what third party components are we going to use in this thing that's coming up, trying to dig a bit more into the planning, you know, all sorts of questions like that. So you fundamentally, it comes down to you've got these things you want to do and you've got this finite number of hours in the day. And how do you try and uh, how do you try and strike a balance? And I wouldn't say I've got a perfect answer to this. I've been trying to figure it out for, for how many years it's been. But I've I've tried a few things. And at the moment, what I'm trying to do is, um, roughly speaking, trying to say, well, meetings as far as possible should land in one half of the day. At the moment, I'm mostly managing to make that the afternoon. The idea being that in the afternoon, I handle the sort of the meetings, the admin, and the more management side of things, thus leaving the mornings freer for some of the some of the hands-on things, some of the more technical things that I still do, and that seems to be a reasonable balance for me. Like I think the I think the roughly half and half, but but a bit flexible is is a a ratio of time that seems to mean I'm, I don't feel like I'm neglecting either one of the either side of it, although it it grows and shrinks any given week, and. It, it is, you know, it is obviously it doesn't work out perfectly, the mornings and afternoons thing. If a customer really wants to meet in the morning, then that's how it's going to have to be. But I think being fairly defensive about the calendar really does help both halves work better. And I think, you know, some people, particularly internally, can be a bit surprised when you outright decline their meeting invite and go no or propose another time on it. But I think you've got to, in, in a constructive way, learn to say no, because otherwise you can quite easily spend all day in meetings and go well i don't feel like even the management side is really being served by that you know there's got to be there's got to be time between them and you that's one of the hardest things to figure out thanks david so if we again start working our way around the room to get people's views and hugo if i come to you first um yeah i mean it it is something that uh, that uh, the way that i've been dealing with that um to add it in any anything that I want to complete um, and to do is make sure that I add it as, as one of my uh, OKRs, for instance, when I'm having um, like the objectives um, for the trimester. Um, that's one, something that I tend to uh, make it, make some part of it uh, as an OKR so that that way I can, you know, it, it's not just me that getting some time to it, but also to let other people know uh, that you're you're dedicating some time for that speci specifically you know talking about for instance changing infrastructure that is that is critical changing i really want to change how we're doing uh, using a third party for a database um 
instead of what we're using right now, we're changing. So I need to dedicate some time for that and to make sure that, that, that I have some time for that. I make it as an, as an OKR and, you know, let people know that I, that I still, I need to work on that. And, and that way, when you make it public, you make it something that's, you know, that you need to um, achieve, you, you kind of, you kind of force yourself into that and, and let people, other people also know that you, you kind of need to work on that. Um, you know, like, like you said, they, they, uh, creating that, that time for, you know, just setting up a specific time for job log from, to work on, on this particular thing is very important. And I, I tend to do that as well. Again, my team is very remote, so it's a very, a bit, a bit difficult. So I need to either make it specific days that I need to work on this or, or, you know, work at, at it. Very, in very small chunks of time, well, it's a bit difficult um, for that. Um, but it is something that is, if you acknowledge and you make it public to everyone in the company, you know, my company is not that big, the one that I'm in. Um, but if you make sure that everyone knows that this is something that you need to work on and this is why, <laughs> um, you kind of have yourself some free time and, you know, rescheduling meetings is definitely something that I've been doing a lot. Um, uh, to avoid to avoid those and those interruptions because they are those, those interruptions are uh, they 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 kind of kill your kill your flow and uh, they definitely will make it very difficult for you to achieve what you want if you keep having these and keep having to, to change your your mindset into whatever's been talked about. Uh, so I, I always tend to communicate that really well, either in Google Chat or. Um, in Slack, um, say that I'm 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 focusing on on something and, and allow allow people to see the status. Um, if I really want to avoid uh, interruptions and also use the do not disturb a lot um, um, functionality because I think it's very valuable. There's people that ask you all sorts of questions um, when you're managing someone. Also, having to speak to other parts of the business as well achieve their goals because it's when you're in a company in a management um, position it, like I am um, it, you, your other teams they goals they also uh, they also you, you also are a part of them as well because you need to do something for them to achieve that or you know you need to get some some stats or you need to get some data for them to, to achieve their sales target or to make sure that the well know someone renews a customer renews um and, and it's very important that you you make everyone aware that your time is limited and you need to to focus on on certain on the things that you need to in order for you you to go yourself to achieve your own the your okrs thanks hugo and connor have you got any thoughts around dividing your time between managing and being hands-on yeah so um so in terms of dividing my time um yeah, for, for me in particular, as I mentioned before, I'm kind of in a bit of a, I'm sort of straddling the fence very much at the moment still between uh, a technical lead, so still being quite, quite hand, uh, boots on the ground, but also trying to, to, to sort of do the, the engineering manage, manage, management, excuse me, side of things as well. Um, so it, the, the, the honest and sure answer is it kind of varies um, depending on the situation that I find myself in. Um, I try and, I, I try and reserve, um, generally speaking, I try and keep it about 50, 50 at the moment in, in reality, it's normally 
depending on what's going on and the situation as it as as things develop, it normally moves into like a kind of two thirds, one third scenario, um, and that can be either way, right? Um, most of the time, it's more technically focused um, because my team are, in terms of in terms of the management leadership side of things, my team are are pretty pretty self reliant in many ways um, on day to day stuff, and I can come to that a little bit more in a minute. Uh, to explain how, but um, yeah, it, it's typically it's about two thirds, two two thirds technical, one third managerial, but it does very much fluctuate, and and that is tiring and a bit stressful in of itself, right? Because you're kind of constantly moving between between those two, um, and that comes back to what we talked about before, our focus, time, and context switching and stuff. Um, what I would sort of say though is. Um, for my team more generally rather than just necessarily myself we were finding as a team that that we were spending far too much time in meetings uh and basically on teams calls uh not for the sake of it but but certainly we were spending way more time than we needed to so going back to tom's point earlier about you know limiting that time or having slightly different uh meeting durations uh, is, is a great shout um you know we we definitely benefited from doing something quite similar in the past um, the other thing that we've done or, or that I introduced um, uh, actually at the start of this year was to move more towards an asynchronous first way of working. And that very much fits into the remote working stuff as well. Uh, this is something that I think came from remote working uh, initially. But it's basically the idea that um, almost nothing that you actually need to talk about needs to necessarily happen with everyone sat down in front of a computer screen or if it's remote on teams or in person like in a meeting room right if you actually think about it most of this stuff can be done in a more asynchronous nature and obviously for from a software development background when we think of asynchronous what we tend to think of is uh, a computer requesting something to happen and then not expecting a response straight away, but then able to respond after a duration of time when whatever it's asked to do something is ready and you get a response back. So it's it's this break it's breaking this request and response uh requirement into a more kind of uh flexible system, right? So taking that same paradigm and, and moving it towards communication and time planning. Um basically what async first um, and I, there's plenty of better online resources that explain this better than I can, but basically what async first as a working paradigm tries to do is say, okay, scrub everything you think about meetings and their use cases and, you know, your other kind of, uh, whatever rituals you may have in your software team. So if you're scrum, you have your retrospectives and your planning and whatever else, you know, Kanban has its own sort of style and other, other programming, uh, other programming programming development styles have their own kind of setup, but forget all of that. And basically, uh, you start to follow a new set of, not rules, certainly not rules, but sort of general prescriptions around how you should try and think of things. So the first thing is, um, you, you generally assume that whatever you're about to talk about, or you need someone's help with probably doesn't need a meeting. Like doesn't need a face-to-face -face meeting. That's your starting point. Your starting point isn't, I should have a meeting. It's, I don't need a meeting. Um, but I need to get, I need to ask them a question or I need to get some feedback. The second thing you do is you then say, okay, if, um, if I need to ask this person, I'm going to do it in a way that's going to be as least disruptive as possible to them in terms of their working flow. 
And and so you would typically do that by sending a message over Slack or over Teams. But as as part of your team, you make it clear to everybody, and this is something we had to go through, that you don't necessarily expect an immediate response. You know, it's very easy on Teams and Slack in particular to try and respond immediately to everything. And that's where you basically lose days, a whole day, like trying to uh, deal with that. So the first thing you do is you have a general expectation that unless it's like, unless something is burning down, you do not necessarily need a response straight away. And if you, if something is super urgent that requires an immediate response, then you have an agreed process by which you know that that's happening so that you can respond straight away and you know it's serious. Um, so with that expectation that you don't need to reply straight away, that empowers your team to then be able to say, do you know what? Connor's asked me a question. It's not super urgent. I'm right in the middle of something that's really important and I'm really focused. I'm actually going to just ignore that. Or he might, they might not even know that that's happening because they've closed teams for an hour. And the fact, the point is that's totally fine. Um, and, and it frees, it, it, it allows them to really have that focus time. The third thing is around documentation. Documentation is essential for async first to work. Um, so the basic principle is um, if you've asked a question more than twice uh, at any point or, you, 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 or you've answered a question more than twice, it goes into some documentation because then it's captured and you can refer back to it later. Um, you want to build good documentation for the company and for customers as you're moving forward because you enable people to self-serve rather than having to come back to you. Um, and, um, it also provides a record, right? Which you can come back to. So, um, we obviously have internal documentation for anything related, you know, how to's or developer guides, or whatever it may be and for processes, but we've also moved all of our, what would have been regular meetings, um, to, uh, regular team meetings to documentation based as well to async. So a really clear example of that would be standups. So most teams do like a standup at some point during the day. Uh, it's normally sort of 10 minutes, but what I was finding was that, and I blame myself mainly for this, I was talking way too much in those calls and I wasn't really, I was sort of, I was abusing the nature of those calls. Um, and that meant that people were waiting far too long for me to finish a monologue a lot of the time. And so what I, what we did is we actually moved the entire async, uh, we, we moved the entire standup over to an async standup. So basically... The way that works is we have a so we have a page in our internal uh, kind of knowledge base system where every day a new entry gets created for that standup for the day happens every night at midnight. So when we come in in the morning, my team basically have up until lunchtime to any time uh, up until lunchtime to fill in this standup document, which basically asks three questions. It asks what are you what have you done? What did you do yesterday? What have you done today? Do you have any blockers? And then if you need uh, any particular input from anybody else, then you can like add them in the knowledge base and that notifies people. And then that means that no one is being prescribed to join a 930 standard call when they might be doing something important. Um, it traps, it tr literally, I have a day-to-day -day record of standard meetings that kind of happens naturally because that's how people communicate in the first place. Um, and uh, it makes it easy to send notifications to one another without disrupting their daily flow. Uh, and we've done the same for retrospectives and for and for to a certain extent planning, but planning tends to be done on call because it's just a bit easier. Um, but yeah, so a 
I've probably gone into far too much detail already there, but but async first for, for my team has been a really useful way of actually clawing back a ton of time, which obviously then influences how much my team are able to get done and how I can balance my time. Thanks, Connor. Um, Hugo, I'll come back to you and then Tom will come to get your views after that, if that's okay. Yeah, and then just a very good point about uh, reducing team uh, meeting times. And um, I think for me, Personally, um, it, while the idea of, you know, having a really productive meeting uh, is a good idea, um, but f as a remote first team, um, if if we, we did that or reducing the time and we didn't, we actually add a few, a 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes extra to our meetings, because if that doesn't happen, there's no social element. Uh, of the entire team and you end up with let's go to this meeting we have 15 minutes and then we never see again each other again and uh, while again like while the the, the stand-up let's say synchronous stand-up is a really good idea i feel like if i didn't have that there will be uh, days and days where i wouldn't hear um, or even speak to some of the, uh, the team members and i think it really as someone joined the uh, as a technical lead, uh, recently to a company, if you don't really communicate with the, with, with the team, it's very hard for them to relate to you or even like acknowledge you really as 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 a as a, as a lead. Um, it's very difficult for that if that happens. So, um, so that's one point. The other point is the documentation part. I feel like uh, we are very documentation focused and. It's very easy to uh, to lose yourself. Uh, documentation, you know, documentation isn't, isn't updated as you know. There's a document that isn't updated as regularly as it, as they should. It needs to be a, a team a team wide buy in uh, for that to work. Because if you, if there are elements that don't update documentation, I have to constantly remind certain elements to update their documentation uh, when they're changing critical parts of the code. And the documentation is up isn't up to date, it, it becomes really hard for that to you know to, for that to be helpful even. And um, particularly myself, I spent spent like a day or two because I went through the documentation, I did something, and that was that wasn't up to date. And, and when I was told it was, you know, it's, it's the documentation is a, is a tricky thing, but it needs to be you need to be aware that it can if the whole team doesn't buy do a buy-in on that it becomes it can become a problem a problem right thanks hugo and tom is there anything you'd like to add from your experiences yeah i think one of the key things i really get which is really addressing is just like the meeting problem and that's i think um i'll probably just focus on that it consultancy that is a big thing so basically within my average day i kind of have three main responsibilities i have my client responsibilities i have my project responsibilities and then i have my organizational responsibilities so the organization would be like line management making sure that um i'm keeping up with the weekly updates reporting to other managers etc my project ones can be matching up with my engineers ensuring that i'm doing my technical tasks and then the client responsibilities is actually looking to grow the client account, making sure the client is happy, ensuring that there is a constant mean of communication. And this could be really hard to manage. And basically being sultan is being a master of context switching, <laughs> which 
day to day can work and not work. <laughs> you know, it really depends on the day. Um, but one of the key things that I found really useful to sort of claim that time back and sort of show how much I want to achieve in that day actually comes from a coping mechanism I have because I have a dyslexia, so my short-term memory is really bad. So I write lists for everything. Everything's got a list, basically. So each day in the morning, I usually write a list, and that list usually grows um, or hopefully shrinks, but usually grows throughout the day. And then I try and tick things off. And then if I haven't completed some stuff, at the end of the day, I kind of make a decision then. I'm like, D does this need to carry on to the next day? Can this be dropped? Can I send a quick message now? And then do I need to put time in my diary to, you know, complete those tasks? Because I really agree you know, with you, David, about ensuring that you say no to meetings that you don't need to attend in a polite way, obviously, but you've got to be defensive of your own time. Otherwise, as we've all experience you can just be in meetings all day and not really achieve anything and it doesn't really give any benefit or any value and you've just got to make sure that you're a little bit defensive of your time and you know if you're in a meeting and it's not particularly productive for you i always just say if, if you're in a good organization and this is a sign of a good organization i think in a healthy team you just put the chat being like hey sorry i've got to go interesting meeting but i got to go and just leave that meeting and then just say but if you need me reach out to me for anything you know make sure that you're using your time as productively as possible thank you all and last but no means least hugo and your question was how do you convince the team that you're technically competent to lead them when you join as a leader into a new team so if you'd like to give us a little bit of context around your experiences and we can move again into um into the round table to get everyone's views yeah, so this this comes from uh, from I guess you guys already understood, um, but I since I joined um, recently and my team is remote first, it is um, my time with with my team members is very limited, um, and um, having just met, you know, I, think I only met one developer, the most senior developer, when I was interviewing for this company. And also a lot of talks with the CEO and, and other and other elements of the company. Um, there's there's not it's not easy um, for you to to make sure that the team is aware that you're technically competent. Um, um, not just as a, like not not, a, not as a manager, but like if you're if you're joining as a tech lead um, and um, that all all of your team is remote, it's very difficult for to. Um, get your opinions across, um, at least from from my perspective, from my experience at what I'm in this company, um, to to make sure that they understand that you're, you know, you know what you're talking about, um, and uh, it, it's so I'd really like to understand how are you guys um, dealing with that. I know that everyone has different experiences with the different people. I think. It's, probably is more of a of a, of a person's problem or then and you know, some some uh, some people have more difficulty in to accept accept strange alien <laughs> uh, people that just joined as your manager um I believe that's also the case but I'd like to understand really how do you how do you make sure that when you're joining a company as a manager that you are um, transmitting the confidence and you know um, making sure that they, they are aware 
who are technically competent. That was my question. What's the content? Thanks, Hugo. Um, so we start working our way around the room again, like we have done, and I'll come to you first, David. Sure. I mean, I'll um, I'm I'm speculating a little bit here because I've I've been sort of I I came from within this team, so I haven't directly had the experience of coming as an outsider. But I I'll I I think the question still sort of applies, and I I do have new people coming in who you know don't know me and and, and don't know what I do and don't know, um. So for me, I think one of the important things is is in communicating. It's um, one of the things I do, which is sort of dull but very necessary, is I maintain some of our internal documentation about our architecture. And I think it's the sort of thing that's very easy to forget in a team. But if you're if you're capable of writing something like that down and keeping it somewhat up to date, I think particularly for new people coming onto the team, that ought to give a bit of confidence that there's a you know these things are being neglected and that i know enough to to know my way around the nuts and bolts of the thing to keep things like the diagrams and so on up to date and i think that's a a good rule of thumb about how much knowledge you should have even if you're not hands on most of the time um and i think another thing i do you know partly just for amusement or or, or for people that giggle over when they're having a coffee or whatever but partly it has a serious uh purpose to it is I I like to keep my eye in. I have a few side projects. Like one of one of the things I do to relax is uh, to is I run a little uh, automated invoicing system for our church hall. And you know it was something that I did over a weekend five years ago, and it it mostly just sits there and does what it does. But it's a good excuse to have a a thing that lets me keep my eye in convince myself i can still run a little bit of cone on my own and it gives rise occasionally to you know i i write quite a lot on my blog about that about other things you know little bits of home automation nothing usually to do with work because there's just too much confidentiality and other stuff attached to it but just just occasionally dropping these things into slack and saying oh look i i you know i, I spent the weekend taking this apart or i did this or this it's it's partly just i say a source of amusement for people but partly i think just hopefully validates the idea that i've i've still got some technical nails and and you know i know most of them read it um and they you know they're not shy about saying when they disagree with it but it, i think it, it, it accidentally is quite a uh quite a useful way just of uh of, of getting people thinking and and uh kind of you know showing a different side to just just being that that management guy that they deal with on in, in the more formal interactions thanks david and tom have you got any thoughts around it yeah so i think it's a really interesting question something i've definitely felt because basically with a consultant i would get dropped into a team and then have to lead a whole new group of people and i would say sometimes it is a bit difficult to feel like show that technical leadership, especially when maybe some of the senior people have been on the project for a bit longer and have maybe a bit more technical knowledge than you in that certain area, because as a technical lead, you wear many hats and stuff. So where I like to learn for those people, that's my first thing. I want to learn from them. And then also, I think I focus on asking the right questions. And as David said, ensuring you know, maybe looking at that boring admin stuff that they don't want to think about, but actually really vital to a project, you know, how does, how do you do your programming? Are you doing unit testing effectively? How can we make that better? Documentation, should we look into pair programming? That sort of stuff to spice up the project can be really useful and sort of show that technical leadership. And then 
I also do like a lot of, you know, I sometimes find an area in the project that maybe is lacking a bit of care and I go into there and I go, okay, how can I make this better? That also grows my own knowledge and stuff. Also, just to ensure that I keep up to date with things, I am quite bad with side projects. I start them for a week and then leave them. So personally for me, I found certs really useful because it's a goal that I can aim for. I can focus my time very limited and then complete that cert and move on. That doesn't work for everybody. And I think that's like the good thing. It's like finding how you keep up to date with things. Also signing up for a couple of like newsletters and stuff, especially in the technical space you're in, like with data, there's loads of stuff about ML, AI at the moment, but also Databricks, Microsoft Azure, all those new developments and stuff. It's and posting that into like the Slack channels and stuff and getting conversations going looking at like little spike things i think is really key and important and it just um gets the team thinking in a different way thanks tom and connor is there anything you'd like to add oh yeah so uh, to be honest i i would echo i would echo everything that the, the other panel panelists have already said to be honest um Again, I think similar to to David, perhaps I thought I'm I don't have a lot of I don't have any experience of moving into a team as like an outsider uh, and moving straight into management. Right, I I was the founding member of the team and then I built the team around. Um, and as I say, I'm a bit I'm a bit different at the moment because I am still reasonably technically hands on, but is but I'm moving sort of further away from that. I actually think I might throw a little curveball in. Um, and say that rather than answering the question directly of how do you keep up your, you know, how do you sort of keep validating your technical competence, um, I perhaps think about it the other way or another way, which is, do you need to do that? Um, or at least to what extent do you need to do that? Because you are, you know, by definition, if you're, if you're moving away from being a hands-on technical person every day, then actually your first responsibility isn't necessarily to always know everything about all the technical stuff, right? That's why your position exists. Um, that's why you're building a team, because those people should have that technical, that really deep technical knowledge. I'm not for one second saying that as an engineering manager, you should not know, uh, you know, sort of broadly the trends or broadly um, you know, or, or have a good understanding of, you know, what, what technologies your team are using. But I, it depends on the, it depends on sort of where the motivation for this question comes from to a certain extent, I guess. But, but my take on it would be, I wouldn't necessarily worry too much about being able to prove every day that you are technically kind of super, you know, that you know everything technically, because at the end of the day, that's not what you're there for. You're there to help your team who are meant to be technically super competent uh, in all those new technologies, um, succeed. And whereas once upon a time, if you're, again, the topic of this panel is moving from a more technical role into a more leadership role. So once upon a time, I'm assuming that we all would have been at the sort of cutting edge of that technology knowledge sphere. Um, by definition, you're as you move away from that focus, you're you start to bring in new skills and learn new things that means that you can't necessarily know everything technically. And and so I think it's more about them perhaps making sure that your team understands what your responsibilities are. Like 
making sure it's clear to your team what it is that you are meant to be delivering for them and making it clear that I am not necessarily always going to be the responsible knowledge on this technical thing. And in fact, most developers wouldn't expect that anyway because they know that they would have been brought in to to, to try to be that person depending on your setup or whatever. Um, uh, but knowing, but then, you know, making it clear that you are there for things like pair programming to be like a rubber duck. If we think of rubber duck programming, you know, basically your sounding boards and actually having somebody that isn't necessarily super zoned in on the nitty gritty of the technical detail can actually often be a benefit because then you get a fresh perspective of somebody that isn't sort of necessarily, um, you know, super close to that. It can actually help having somebody that's actually got a, got a step back from, from that technical stuff. Um, and one, so one thing again that I've just done with my team fairly recently, I've introduced that has been quite a good thing when it comes to understanding roles and responsibilities is I followed, so Atlassian produce, uh, I think a load of really great material about, about engineering management, um, and software development management. And one of the tools that they provide you or processes that they provide that you can use is called the team health check. Uh, so that is something that you can basically run with your team on a, we do it every sort of quarter. And basically the idea is you get your team together you have a load of questions and then you sort of rank and answer on those questions. And it sort of gives you a sense of, are you green in these areas? Are you orange or are you red? And if you're red, then you've got significant improvement. Green is really good. You don't need to do anything, carry on with what you're doing. And then orange is obviously kind of in the middle. And one of the topics or focus areas on there is as a team, do we all understand what our roles and responsibilities are? And as a manager, am I making it clear to my team what I am actually there to do and what I can't, what the extent of my uh, sort of knowledge is and isn't uh, so that you know how to get the best out of me in the same way that obviously as a manager, I'm looking to get the best out of you guys as my team. And that has brought out some interesting aspects as well um, that, that I've sort of then gone and worked on. So, yeah. Generally speaking, sure, you definitely want to be keeping a, a reasonable tab on what's going on. And and if we're all engineers at heart, then most of this comes naturally to us anyway, because we love it, because that's how we got into engineering in the first place. But yeah. Thanks, Connor. And Hugo, if we come back to you. Yeah, I guess, I guess it's not, not just proving to them that they're technically competent. It, it really depends on the on the kind of the role and your responsibilities in, in the team. Um, so in my uh, one of my responsibilities is really to drive the, the the technology and to really focus on on making some decisions in terms of technology and what we use. So it really is um, more of a question about how do you make sure that the team really understands that uh, when you're making a decision uh, on how to you know like an infrastructure change and affect the entire code base uh, that you want to do um that that they understand that they're it's coming from someone that um knows what they're talking about it's very difficult to you know we're all engineers we all believe in ourselves but if um and we all know um you have some skill level that we i think we all achieve by in terms of experience um it, but it's really difficult to for some, when you're making a decision change, a decision that's going to change the fundamentally the, the infrastructure, the, the, the technology they use, um, uh, to, and 
affect the product itself, um, the developers kind of need to do a buy-in into that. And um, so it was more related on, on, on that aspect, really. Um, how can you tell a team, you know, actually, this is a really um, weird thing, but like, how are you going to you know, want to move away from a, a database to another database? So using a different database and, and they're like, well, why do we need to do that? Um, and it really comes to the, you know, thinking you his technical lead, you know, where the, the, the project is going to, uh, the kind of things that it will need to be. Um, doing in the future in order for you, for you achieve, to achieve that you, you need better tools you need better infrastructure in order to handle that you know our company is going to make some change in the, the types of products that we serve and by definition that will mean that, that we will have a lot more customers uh, more bigger customer base and that will mean a lot more people logging into our website and a lot more people the infrastructure will be more demanding so you need to think ahead and, and make the, the infrastructure changes. How you communicate that to people, uh, your developers, and 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 make them understand that you're making this decision based on your knowledge and how. Um, and so it's it was more on that and not more. But yeah, that's where where that's where that it came from really, and not more of a like proving that you're technically competent. Because I think it's not necessary to do that. But yeah, sorry. Thanks, Hugo. And Tom, did you want to add something? Yeah, just a really quick point about, so a lot of the stuff I do, I have to introduce like new architecture or try to get people, let's say, moving from like say, a database to a, a data lake approach or a data mesh. And one of the key ways that I think is really good at that is following a sort of architectural decision record thing. You know, you say, this is what I've explored and always put the negative points about moving. So you show that you've considered that. Don't always focus on the positive because then people yeah. don't really believe you. And I think as engineers, we're naturally skeptic as we should be. <laughs> you know, if a product comes along and says it will solve all your problems, it will not solve all your problems and it will probably bring problems. So it's really important to say to your team, you know, this is what I consider. This is the difficulty in moving to the system, but I believe that the benefits will outweigh the costs. And then basically they're either on for that journey and if they're not on for that journey maybe you need a one-to-one -one with them or maybe they just need a little bit more time etc like new ideas can take time to sink in i think it's really important to that's why spikes and stuff are really important you know get them used to the tooling get them used to the idea you know have that sort of exploratory session but my number one point is like talk about the negatives of moving to a new decision otherwise people aren't going to buy it they're just going to think it's a bit of a sales pitch brilliant thanks tom um, Connor, I saw your hand up before. Did you ask something to to include? Uh, it it was only really just to say, uh, um, I know, I basically I agree with everything that Thomas said. It's it's um, having having the team buy in is 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 obviously super important. So I guess it's thinking about ways that you can make sure that they they feel like they are owning those decisions. Um, and have as equal stake in it as you do without necessarily having to duplicate the work by having everybody go and sort of ascertain for themselves like what the right course of action is because obviously that becomes quite um, unsustainable and not particularly stable. Um, but I would I would, I would, would just echo basically everything that Tom said and actually a really good point that Tom just raised is around spikes. Um, spikes are a really good way of time boxing um, exploration. And actually, 
it i don't know what the particular circumstances are for you hudo but if you know if you did have an example where you had like a you know you did have one or two people for example who weren't necessarily buying into to a technical decision that you were looking to make then i think the, the a possible solution there would be to to invite them to do a small bit of spike work as well um to to see for themselves you know how how if you like get a second opinion but you need to do that in a way that's controlled so that they don't sort of start running off and building the entire solution. So having a spike where you say, look, we're going to time box a morning um, or an afternoon or a day, depending on the complexity, and you say, you know, here's a bit of time that will carve out for you to go and explore this yourself, see what you come up with, and then let's uh, let's sync up again later today or tomorrow morning um, with that limited time. And see, uh, and then see if you if your opinion has changed or not. And then if it if it hasn't, then obviously it's important to then take those. You know, make make even if you disagree uh, with their thoughts, making sure that it's that you're giving the impression uh, that you're taking it seriously. Because obviously you you want to be doing that is is taking their concerns seriously, and then making sure that um, you're you're taking the most rounded view that you can as a sort of technical lead before um, before making the final decision. Thanks, Connor. So as we come to the end of the podcast, I just wanted to say a really big thank you to all of our guests today for taking time out of their busy schedules uh, and for sharing their thoughts in today's conversation. Once again, our guests on today's podcast have been Connor Goddard from Garden Agritech, Tom Foster from MadeTech, David North from Core Filing, and Hugo Marks from This Is Language. If you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, please feel free to drop me a message. And finally, if you're hiring for any new technical roles or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. I'm Luke Vickers, and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at luke.vickers at evolutionjobs.co.uk, or you can visit us online at evolutionjobs.com. Thanks again to all of our guests, and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.